But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you in the city and cursed shall be you in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flocks. Cursed shall be you when you come in and cursed shall be you when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish and the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruits. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall only be oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will strike on you the knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. 
The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. (coughs) He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, Swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of the heaven, You shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your for nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, 
but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And the evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. Wow, I didn't know if that was going to end. That was a long scripture reading. Now you know why I didn't read it. Well, good morning. I'm thankful for this opportunity to, to preach God's word to you. I, I had the picture in my mind um, as I was thinking about this of something that happened just yesterday when my son Cameron was walking around in uh, his mother's shoes. You know how children like to put on other people's shoes and walk around? And that's the picture I got this morning. Uh, thinking about coming and preaching, just walking around in somebody's shoes. I didn't know, realize Larry's shoes were so big. Um, that's amazing. Well, we're looking at uh, Deuteronomy 27 and 28 this morning. So you can get your Bibles and, and turn there. Believe it or not, there is not a crisis of belief in God in America. There's not. According to a 2011 Gallup survey, 92% of Americans believe in God. This is down only 2% from 1947. By and large, Americans still believe in God. But the question is not simply, do you believe in God or do you believe in a higher power? But what God do you believe in or what do you believe about God? You see, it's not enough to merely believe in God. The wicked Canaanites believed in God. And they were to go in under God's orders and destroy them, take over the land, remove them from the land. As a matter of fact, it says in Deuteronomy 9.4, it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. They believed in a higher power. And yet, God removes them, calling them a wicked nation. James even says that uh, the demons believe in God, and they shudder. It's not sufficient to simply believe in God. But we have to believe the right things about God. You see, I, I think people often, they have this concept of God based on what they find preferable. I mean, think about it. Oftentimes, people's conception of God is something that, you know, they want a God that is, um, you know, reasonable, moderate, not too. Everybody sees themselves as in the middle, right? So God is not too extreme one way or the other. In the end, God becomes tame. C.S. Lewis reminds us that God is not tame in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of you have read that. If you saw the movie, they kind of botched this part. Uh, they switched it all around. But it's a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver with Susan and Lucy. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, uh, the great lion. 
Oh, said Susan, is he quite safe? Shall I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion? That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God cannot be domesticated. We should not have a view of God that is tame, that we can control. Even as Christians, we must be careful that we have not made and fashioned a God in our own mind that is different from the God of the scriptures. And so as we think about this passage, let me remind us of a few truths that we find uh, in the Bible. Number one is this, that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. So what we find about the, in, the, in the God of the Old Testament, his character that still abides today. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Another thing is this, is we are not free to pick and choose what we believe in the Bible. We have to take it all. You know, sometimes you hear people say, well, my God wouldn't do that. Any my God statement sounds to me like an idol, like you have it carried around with you. Here it is. Look, um, my God wouldn't do that. Well, we don't have a my God. We have a God of the Bible. We have the God of the scriptures. And so, as Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Yes, even the curses of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 are profitable for us today. As you know, our theme is, <clears throat> for this series in, through De Deuteronomy, loving obedience to a loving God. Maybe a little challenge this morning, you think, how did the curses, you know, how does that tie in? Um, well, it will. And last week, we, we considered this uh, decision between following God or not following God, receiving his blessings or receiving the curses. And Larry focused mostly on the blessings. And so we want to turn our attention now to curse the curses. So I've entitled the message, The God Who Curses. God declares no less than 18 times that he will curse his people if they disobey. That's, that's hard for us to take in, I think. You know, when you tell your children, you know, take out the trash, you don't follow it up with, or I'm going to curse you. you know, that's not normally our, our normal response. And so this is, this is hard for us. One commentator said, It is not hard to understand why this is perhaps the most difficult passage in Deuteronomy for a modern reader to cope with. Notice he says to cope with, not to understand, not to exegete, but to cope with. You see, we don't normally associate God with curses. We normally associate God with what? Blessings. God bless you. Or we sing about it. God bless America. Blessings we associate with God, but not curses. Blessing, God's love, right? Positive. Um, just, to, just to check, I tuned into a uh, Christian radio station. The song they were playing at the time called Banner of Love. 
I checked the playlist to see what they had just played. Made for love, the proof of your love, and all this was taking was was being aired on a channel called K Love. That, that's what we focus on. You know, I, I don't know if a, a radio station, you know, K curse, negative and threatening. I don't know if that's gonna go over very well. Uh, who's gonna tune into that one? Yeah, I really want some curses today. Uh, that's not normally where we go. The idea of God and curses sometimes don't go together for us. Unless we've read our Bible. Because then we'll realize back in Genesis 3, after the serpent uh, deceived Eve, what happened? God curses the serpent, saying the seed of the woman will crush his head. God curses the ground, the land, so that Adam will have to, man will have to work hard and labor to receive the fruit of his labor. We read in Genesis 4 that God cursed Cain for killing his brother in cold blood. And even in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, someone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. So by the time we get to, De to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the idea of God, the God who curses, should not be surprising to us. 72 verses were read this morning. God wants us to hear this. This is important. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Father, we are prone to understand you in a way that is desirable and preferable to us. And so, Lord, we cry out this morning, we pray that you would help us see a glimpse of who you truly are in your majesty, in your holiness, in your splendor, in your grace and in your mercy. Lord, we know that apart from your spirit, our time together here is in vain. And so, Lord, we pray, O oh Spirit, come and teach us and work in our hearts this morning for the glory of your name and for your son we pray amen briefly we'll cover the content of chapters 27 and 28 obviously i'm not going to going to go verse by verse if i even spent one minute on each verse we would have a one service uh, uh sunday uh we could just all gather together so we won't we won't do that we'll summarize them chapter 27 we can think about this way it deals with the cause of the cursing the cause of the curse. Uh, Twelve specific actions are placed under a curse. And if you look at these, these are things that uh, follow in the Ten Commandments. Uh, and they all, they're also things that violate the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 15, for example, in chapter 27. The first curse mentioned it has to do with worshiping idols, which is a violation of the first and second commandments. Verse 16 mentions dishonoring your father and mother, a violation of the fifth commandment. Verse 17, moving a neighbor's landmark is a violation of the eighth commandment. You shall not steal, including stealing someone's land. Verses uh, 20 through 23, having inappropriate sexual relations is a violation of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And verses 24 and 25 refer to striking down 
a neighbor or taking a bribe to shed innocent blood, a violation of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. But also notice that these are things that are uh, describe a public ceremony. And Larry kind of discussed this with the two mountains last week. Each curse, notice, ends with this refrain, and all the people shall say, Amen. Well, what is amen? What are, what are the people saying? They're saying, so be it. Yes, Lord, we agree. This is good. If we disobey, you are just and right in bringing this upon us. And so this essentially had the effect that all lawbreakers were obligated to pronounce their own curse to agree with God. Notice also, these are, these are sins, many of them, that take place in secrecy. Notice verse 15, it describes someone who, who creates an idol, and then it says, and sets it up in secret. Verse 17 refers to someone moving a neighbor's landmark. I mean, I can't imagine the guy getting on his tractor in the middle of the day, you know, moving the big boulder that separates. The, I think this would be something at night, you know, when no one's around except the cow tippers, you know, go out. And they're going to go out there, and he's going to do it, at, it in secret. Or verse 25 talks about someone taking a bribe. Uh, bribes are done in secret. Sometimes you can see them. I saw a bribe one time when I was in Vietnam. I was on a tour van. I called shotgun, so I was sitting in the front with the driver. And um, he got pulled over by a, a traffic policeman. And he comes back to the van after talking to the policeman. He gets his driver's license, and he finds his wallet, and he sticks some cash in his driver's license uh, wallet thing and he folds it and then he hands it to the police officer i saw it because i was in the front seat you see a bribe takes place in secret and so these secret sins um you know maybe who's there to see well one author said this the purpose of the curses therefore is to remind israel that yahweh sees and knows what happens in secret the criminal who escapes the wrath of the civil community will not escape the wrath of God. He sees and he will bring the curse to his people. So chapter 27 deals with the cause of the curses. And chapter 28 deals with the content. The content of the curses. That if they disobey, no longer will the people be under God's favor, but they will be under God's curse. Instead of using God, his power for good, he will bring it to harm them. All of these uh, things that we read about, all of these curses, can really be put under three categories. Lack of health, lack of crops, and lack of military success. Right? Lack of health, it mentions a bunch of things, pestilence, disease, fever, inflammation, boils, tumors, scabs, madness, blindness, confusion of mind, every sickness. Lack of crops, drought brought about by a lack of rain, blight, mildew, locusts, worms, grasshoppers, and, and then lack of military success, which is found in, summarized in verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemy. You see, ultimately, what he's saying is your wives will be taken, your children will be taken, your crops, your land, your livestock will be all taken, and eventually you will either be killed or taken out of the land as a prisoner. But also notice that these curses represent a reversal of the blessings promised to Abraham. Instead of receiving the land, they're removed from the land. Instead of 
the blessings, they received the plagues of Egypt. Many of these uh, curses resemble the plagues uh, of Egypt. And instead of being delivered from Egypt, it says at the end that they will return to it. You see, these curses really demonstrate the futility of believing and trusting in a false god. Ironically, that is what the very reason that Israel was drawn after these gods was to receive a blessing, particularly the, the gods, uh, the Canaanite god, god Baal. Baal was a fertility god. And so when they wanted to have children, yes, they worshipped Yahweh, but just to be safe, they would also worship Baal. To receive rain, yes, they trusted in Yahweh a little bit, but they also worshipped Baal. And what God is telling them, that the very thing that you're seeking by following these gods will end up not in blessings, but in curses. And also notice that these curses are conditional. The very reason that they're given is to warn. They're given to warn, to plead, to remind, don't go this way. God is saying, there is another way. Follow me, trust in me, follow my word. They don't have to go down that path. There is another way. Chapters 27 and 28. What I want to do with the rest of this time, our time together, is transition now and really go into a time of application. What can we learn from these two texts? And, and really, with difficult texts, you kind of need to have a game plan, especially when you read the Old Testament and you come across a text like this. What do you do? And so what I want to give you are three questions you can ask when you're reading the Old Testament in your own Bible study, in your own time of, of reading and meditation and prayer, to ask these three questions. What does this text teach us about God? What does this text teach us about ourselves? And how does this text point to Christ? So these are three things that we'll ask together this morning, but you need to take these three questions, and as you're reading through the Old Testament, ask yourself these questions. It will help you to meditate and to apply the text. So, first of all, what does this text teach us about God? And I'm just going to highlight three different things. What does it teach us about God? Number one, God is holy, and he's concerned about your holiness. God is holy and concerned about your holiness. What does it mean that God is holy? One of the things it means is that God does not tolerate sin. God must punish sin. Sometimes people have this idea that God is God. He can do anything. He can just, he can just forgive sin without punishment. Wrong. God cannot do anything because God cannot act contrary to his nature. And because he's a holy God, he must punish sin. It must be punished. This is something that we must get a hold of if we're going to understand the importance of the cross. For God not to punish sin is to belittle his own glory. It's to agree with the sinner that, yeah, it's really not that important. God's really not that offended. He's really not that holy. He's really not that perfect. It's to agree with the sinner. No, God must punish sin. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon. God must punish sin. If he did not, he would undeify himself. We have heard some preach a gospel something after this order that, Though God is angry with sinners, yet out of his great mercy for the sake of something that Christ has done, he does not punish them, but remits the penalty. This idea of remitting the penalty is forgiveness without punishment. And Spurgeon says to that, now we hold that this is not God's gospel. 
We believe that God never remitted the penalty, that he did not forgive the sin without punishing it, but that he exacted the full penalty without the abatement of a solitary jot or tittle, that Jesus Christ, our Savior, did drink the veritable cup of our redemption to its very dregs, that he did suffer beneath the crushing wheels of divine vengeance, the same pains and sufferings which we have ought to have endured. Oh, the glorious doctrine of substitution. God is holy. He must punish sin. But he's also concerned about our holiness. Leviticus 11.44, also quoted in 1 Peter, Be holy, for I am holy. We are created in God's image and we are adopted into his family. We are to, we are to uh, resemble our father. He desires for us to be holy. Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. As God's people, resemble him. But oftentimes, God has to discipline us when we stray from his way. This is, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that this is something that is loving. He says in Hebrews 12, my son, do not... Regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises everyone, every son whom he receives. In Deuteronomy, God warns his covenant people. Remember, they were his treasured possession. And so, when they go astray, or to help them from not going astray, he warns them. Sometimes they needed discipline and chastisement. One author said, affliction is a persuasive teacher and its lessons are not easily forgotten. God is holy. A second thing we learn from this text is God is merciful. You might say that's, that's going to be a stretch. No, the church did not check on my preaching license. You might be wondering who gave him a license to preach. Uh, it's true. From this text, we learn God is merciful. One author put it this way. Curses are merciful warnings. The very fact that they have been warned in this way is a token of God's generous mercy. He warns because he loves them and does not want them to suffer. Warning signs are good. I'm thankful for warning signs, aren't you? Come across a sign, danger, steep cliffs ahead. Do you just keep going, same No, you're thankful for the warning sign. Man, slow down, take it easy, be careful. You don't want to go off the hill. The warning signs are good. Now, you have, I'll be honest with you, not every warning sign is equal. I came across some warning signs that I didn't find very helpful. For example, I came across this warning sign. It said, warning this sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. It's like, that, that's not a helpful sign. And then in small print, let's even look a little closer. It said, also, the bridge ahead is out. That's a really bad sign. Saw another sign, <clears throat> maybe a little more helpful. It said, warning, all unattended children will be given a double espresso and a free puppy. That would motivate. 
that would motivate somebody who did that they know how they knew how to get right to the right to the heart of the issue You see, what these curses are are like a giant 72-verse billboard saying, God warning his people, don't go there. It's saying is that your God loves you enough to warn you of the consequences of your sin. And so at this point, the people have to stop and read the sign. You see, God is merciful. He warns his people. He's holy. But this text also teaches us that God is sovereign. He determined when Israel would be blessed and when they would be cursed, when they would receive punishment. He controlled all these things. He is the one who controlled the, uh, the insects and the rain and the nations, whether they would be powerful or not, or whether they would come into the land or not. God controlled all those things. This passage is reminding us is that God is sovereign. He's in control. I was watching on Friday, I was watching the Olympics. Actually, I watch the Olympics every day. Um, I'm kind of glued to, to the TV. And um, men's platform diving. The guy who was doing, I think his name is David Bodias or something like that. Um, the only the top 18 went on to the next round. He was number 18. He was interviewed. How do you feel about this? His response was, God is sovereign. I would have been content, you know, if I didn't make it, but I'm thankful I did. Interestingly, he went on to win the gold medal uh, yesterday. God is sovereign over the big things over the little things in our lives. Do you believe that? Over the, the good things and even over the, the bad things. Do you believe that? I was looking at a book by an author by the name of A.W. Pink. He wrote a book called The Sovereignty of God. Excellent book if you're interested in this topic. It was written a few generations ago, but here's what he said. And I think it's helpful. He said, we take it for granted when the real Christian takes a train journey. That upon reaching his destination, he devoutly returns thanks unto, the, unto God, which of course argues that he, God, controls everything. Otherwise, we ought to thank the engine driver, the stoker, the signalman, etc. Or if in business, at the close of a good week, gratitude is expressed unto the giver of every good and perfect gift, which again argues that he, God, directs all customers to your shop. So far, so good. Such examples occasion no difficulty. But imagine the opposite. Suppose my train was delayed for hours. Did I fret and fume? Suppose another train ran into it and I am injured. Or suppose I had a poor week in business. Or that lightning struck my shop and set it on fire. Or that burglars broke in and rifled it. Then what? Do I see the hand of God in these things? This passage reminds us that God is in control of all things. That he works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That even though some people mean it for evil, for harm, God uses it for good. The second thing we need to ask about a text is what does it teach us about ourselves? Again, let me highlight uh, three things here. Number one is this. We are prone to idolatry. 
Notice the very first thing that God warns us about is making a carved image and setting it up in secret. The very first thing, the Ten Commandments, right? Don't, don't make a, a, a carved image, a graven image. We are prone to idolatry. Christopher Wright in his commentary said this, there's a persistent tendency in human society toward idolatry, seeking answers and solutions in everything but the living God. We are prone to that, and we need to be careful. Even our understanding of who God is and his character Oftentimes we want to mold and shape God according to our preferences, and we need to be careful. We must affirm the God of the scriptures. Guard your heart. Just as the writer of uh, John, the end of first, the first epistle of John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. A second thing we can learn about this text is that our sin has consequences. Our sin has consequences. Now, we have to be careful here because we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. America is not the people of God. The blood-bought church today is the people of God. So there's not a one-to-one correspondence, but there's still the principle that our sin has consequences. If we disobey God's law, God's word, there are still consequences. He's reminding us that, yes, even if he forgives us, we still suffer the consequences for our sin. But I I do want to make this clarification, this caveat, if you will, because I think maybe sometimes we take that too far in our own personal lives. What I mean by that is this. Sin has consequences, but it doesn't mean that every bad thing that happens to us is a direct result of our sin. So that if we, don't do, if we do something wrong or neglect to do something we ought to have done, that somehow God is up in heaven waiting to get us. I think that sometimes that's the way we react. That every sin, every bad thing that happens, maybe there's a link to something we did wrong. And there might be. We should think about that and pray about it. But not necessarily. Jesus addressed this in a couple areas. In, in Luke 13, for example, Pilate had killed some people in Galilee. And so... Jesus is questioned about this, and he says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Yes, they did. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he takes the opportunity to call them to repentance. He goes on to say, or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Sin has consequences, but not everything that happens in our lives is a direct result of something we did wrong. And so we have to be careful because I think sometimes, you know, you're, you're, you're doing something that day, you're working, you're, you're, but a business deal falls through. And maybe your response is, oh, I knew I should have had my quiet time this morning. God just got me back. And and that's not necessarily the case. We have to be careful. You know, you're working and, uh, you know, you you, you hit your thumb with the hammer. You think, oh, I didn't bless my food at lunch. I knew I should have stopped and, and returned thanks to God. That's not necessarily the case. You see, we live in a fallen 
and broken world. And sin affects everything. In John chapter 9, this is the uh, chapter of the, the man who is, was born blind. Remember that? And the disciples ask him, and this, their question is interesting. Rabbi, this blind man, who sinned, this man or his parents? Notice there's only two options. Somebody sinned because he's blind, right? Something bad happens, it must be a direct result of somebody's sin. And Jesus' response is, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes something might go wrong in your day, and God is just testing you. Maybe he's, he's, he wants you to look at your heart. I mean, there's maybe not something directly that you did that was wrong. But he wants to display his glory in you so that even if something goes wrong, you still delight in the giver of every good and perfect gift. And that your focus is not on the things of this world. So if something goes wrong, you can still praise God and give glory to him. A third thing we can learn from this text is that we need reminders. We, we need warning. Um, did you notice that in chapter 28, there are 14 verses given to explain the blessing that God is going to give the people? 14 verses and 54 verses of warning, cursing. That's interesting, isn't it? God is warning his people. I think they get the blessing side fairly easy, but the warning side he emphasizes. And this is not just something in the Old Testament, by the way. God uses warnings in the New Testament to warn his people. And sometimes we think warning passages are given to expose the, the fake believers, the hypocrites. But I think the mo more importantly, the warnings are given so that God's people hear his voice and they pay attention. And that very warning is what helps them persevere till the end. There's all kinds of warnings in the New Testament. I'll just give you a few. Paul says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Be careful. It's a warning. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The writer of Hebrews says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in you any evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We need to be reminded of who God is and what he expects. Even though we are not saved by our works, he's not saying, you know, do this so that you'll receive salvation. But now that you receive salvation, God is graciously giving us reminders you see, it's like he, he's, remember, he's the good shepherd, and we are the sheep. And the shepherd calls out, warning, and the sheep hear his voice, and they pay attention, and they follow close to the shepherd. And they, didn't get, they don't get close to the cliff, because they take it seriously. They follow close after him. What does this text teach us about God? What does it teach us about ourselves? And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, what does this teach us about Christ? 
this whole passage on God's going to bring curses upon his people. Thankfully, the New Testament, namely the Apostle Paul, specifically addresses this issue. Galatians 3 and verse 10. Paul says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. Notice here Paul has broadened this idea of the curse. Because he's not looking at it just from the Mosaic covenant perspective. Because that was specifically for Israel receiving certain blessings related to the land. And he broadens it now to say that everyone is under a curse. Because nobody keeps God's word perfectly. All are under the curse. But then he goes on to say in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. See, what Paul's reminding us is that the very Son of God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he humbled himself and he became a man. He became a servant. He lived a perfect life and they put him on the cross. And on the cross, he suffered the penalty that was due to you and to me. And so on that cross, Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? R.C. Sproul says, Christ did not just feel forsaken, he was forsaken. For Jesus to become the curse, he had to be utterly, totally, and completely forsaken by the Father. And so either, Paul's saying, is we either bear the curse ourselves, or we flee to the one who bore it on our behalf. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth, believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved. And the the reason is because Christ became a curse for us, receiving the penalty that was ours to bear. There is a difficult verse in this passage that I think I need to uh, reference, even though my tendency was to just to skip it. It's in verse Uh, 63 of chapter 28. And we'll close with this. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good, he says to the people, and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. How does that verse just... What does that verse do to your spirit? Just as God delighted in blessing the people, so God is going to delight in punishing them? 
That's not an easy verse for me to take. I don't know about you, but that's, that's, that's hard. And as I was meditating upon this verse, I was reminded of Isaiah 53. Because I, I don't really know what to do with this verse. Some people say, oh, it's anthropomorphic language describing God in human terms. Okay, Somehow trying to exegete what this passage means. But notice what Isaiah 53 then says. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Bible says that it pleased God to crush his son on the cross. Because at that moment, Christ was paying the penalty of the curse on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, be thankful that Christ has become the substitute for us. Let's pray together.